I don't think we've met before, but I'm the referee on this field. If you're working as an accountant and you lose your job, nobody really notices. Leinster could offer me five mil a year, I wouldn't go. It is Tommy Moore! Robbie Robbie Weekly. Little reverse pass. Hello and welcome to the 42 Rugby Weekly. Gavin Casey here in Cork and I'm joined as always by Murray Kinsella of the 42. Murray, how are things? Good, I'm in hopeful form. There's talk of vaccines, Fiji are back in the Autumn Nations Cup um, and there's a possible bronze medal for Ireland this weekend so loads to be excited about. Yeah, absolutely. Bernard Jackman joins us as well as always. How are things in your end, Birch? Yeah, I'm good. I'm looking forward to seeing a, a game of consequence. I think, I think the pressure's on. Ireland this weekend and I'm looking forward to seeing how they react yeah absolutely pressure is on we had an interesting tweet in response to our podcast last week Bernard uh, from a, a kind of a burner account set up as recently as November <laughs> saying we're being too negative now you have to treat these accounts I think with an element of suspicion particularly when their tweets are all directed at one particular topic so hopefully we didn't uh, ruffle too many feathers uh, from whoever was behind that account uh, it's going to be difficult to be positive today though I think when we look back on that Georgia game later on we're obviously going to preview that Scotland game as well in doing so uh, but a few other things to start with really uh, Murray beginning with what's going on in Argentina which is the talk of the rugby world at the moment and I think understandably I'm a little bit surprised it hasn't gained more traction in a general sporting sense but for anybody who isn't up to speed with it uh, they might have heard the other day that the captain Pablo Matera had been stood down from his captaincy uh, due to the resurfacing of a number of tweets that he sent sort of eight nine years ago uh, a couple of them at least being incredibly racist uh two other argentina players were, were suspended as well and it felt like yeah that's an understandable decision by the pumas to stand down their captain in the circumstances uh, but only today he's been reinstated the two other suspended players are, are back in the mix as well apparently or at least reportedly after a protest or or even uh, suggestions of a strike on behalf of the Argentina players um, who took umbrage with the fact that their captain and, and uh, teammates had been suspended in that manner for something that had happened a long time ago. But uh, it does leave a bit of a black eye, I think, in terms of the public perception of Argentina right now, because... Uh, nothing has really changed in the interim. Like, nothing has really changed in the intervening days whereby you could say well, yeah, it makes sense to, to reinstate him. Like, if you were suspending those players for that reason only a few days ago, I don't know how you can justify um, basically overturning your own suspension uh, in a in a matter of a couple of days. So, um, and there's, listen, there's loads to get into here. I, I do want to, before I, I ask you guys about it, um, provide a little bit of context by just giving the, the, a couple of the tweets in question. I think that the ones that cross the the line into flagrant and horrible racism are the ones that are that are most pertinent um there are others as well talking about hatred of other south american countries or people from uh, different south american countries but the ones that uh, are, are racist uh, one of them is nice morning to go out in the car and run over blacks in reference to black people that was on the 3rd of may 2012 uh, 27 days later that same May uh, Matera tweeted South Africa baby I'm finally leaving this country full of blacks 
Um, so to start with, I might ask yourself, Bernard, like, can you get your head around Argentina's thinking here in, in reinstating Matera, particularly as captain, or, or what was your reaction to it generally when you heard that news? Look, I thought it was uh, uh, horrific um, what I saw. And, and I know people, um, you know, who were excusing him, saying it was based on his age and, and he was... Um, whatever 17 or 18 years old but still um i think there had to be there has to be a, a a punishment to be honest i can't understand and even if it's a case of if the players are the ones who forced the the uar's hand on this by threatening uh, a strike well shame on them you know um really because uh, and also shame on the uar for for folding because um well not look i don't think he should be a ban for life or anything, you know, um, if it was, if, if, if he's, um, completely sincere about his apology, well then obviously, you know, he should be allowed back playing again at some stage, but there has to be some kind of punishment for it. So, uh, personally for me, I'm shocked. Um, we don't have the full details of, of why and, and, um, for what reasons they have decided to lift this and whether it's lifted short term while there's a proper investigation, um, which may be the case. And maybe then I could understand, potentially that uh, if the UAR just want to you know go through due process but um, yeah I think I think look at it it's, it doesn't reflect well on, on them as a squad and and uh, yeah it's 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 an ugly an ugly episode for for rugby at the moment yeah in 2021 it'll be six months before they play their first test so you would have imagined that would have been the perfect buffering period to conduct that investigation having stripped him of captaincy and if you were going to reinstate him do it in six months time when he's had time to properly make amends and Murray just before I throw to you I I will go off on a a slight tangent I'll bring it back to Matera but I do think in issues such as these the central question is often does a person have the capacity to reform or to basically change in the intervening years and I go back to my own when I was his age, say, when he sent those tweets, look, we're roughly the same age anyway, so it would have been around the same time. Myself, my peer group, we would have used terminology, like derogatory terms for gay people, one particular term, and another one that, that would be uh, derogatory towards disabled people. And we would have used it in everyday parlance, uh, indiscriminately, really, in school, just like it, it wouldn't have been intended to offend uh, the people that the words were designed to offend in their origin, but just became part of almost slagging between friends. And as you grow more socially conscious as you get a little bit older you realize oh my god why were we using those words you change your vocabulary you eradicate words like those from your vocabulary because you realize you could have been gravely offending people and i even think it haunts me to this day that i would have used some of those words even in school we had five or six people in in our year in school who came out as gay uh, over the the last few years of school and i think back to maybe when i was 15 16 and using terms like that and i just think you know it it it, it was a disgraceful thing to do i didn't realize it at the time but, but where i find this different with matera like and i think sorry i think most listeners to the podcast can well around my age we'll be able to relate to that there are definitely as as years go on cases in which you just realize a, a certain word or a certain way of referring to to somebody is unacceptable and you make that change but where matera where where, where matera's case rather differs to me is that the the oppressed people in question in his tweets are the butt of the joke if you know what i mean so 
it, they were like only he will know whether they were really designed to offend black people he might argue at the time he was a st- stupid kid making a joke but ultimately uh he would have known full well of the offense that he could have been causing by by issuing those tweets publicly again he's 17 18 but he has agency like he's not a baby at that time and that's where i feel he needs to do more to show that he actually understands why it was wrong so he issued an apology and i have to say like when high profile figures issue apologies uh, around topics like these I, I wince to be honest because we know ultimately like they haven't written the apology themselves they might have cleared it uh, but it's written by professionals and to me I, if I was if I was an Argentinian rugby fan of, of good faith or conscience I would want to hear Matera actually address this properly and explain why it was wrong and explain that he knows now how incredibly offensive it was. Do it with a video message or something rather than issue a a statement on paper, if you like. Uh, And that's what I can't really get my head around. It's like, is it just the case that an apology is issued by him, written by somebody else realistically, and then you you draw a line under it and move on? I, I think it's kind of scandalous really I'm, I know I'm gone off on one there but um, what what do you make of it Murray and, and do you I, I, like I presume you do disagree with the fact that he's been reinstated so quickly yeah I, I totally agree with Shevin Burner on that front it's just happened way too quickly it's a couple of days complete U-turn having called it out the UAR saying it was xenophobic discriminatory like in no uncertain terms saying how wrong it was and suddenly he's back in state as captain and, and his coach is calling him a great guy great human being he's talking about Oh, you know, this guy, um, him and his family have really struggled the last few days. It's it's really sad. Um, like, spare us that. Like, people who've been discriminated have been, you know, struggling all their lives for longer, for decades, centuries. So that kind of garbage just isn't welcome, really. Um, and it's a bad look for rugby, definitely. We've had we've had everyone, like, well, a lot of people taking a knee recently saying that the game is against racism. And this clearly shows that the most important thing is getting the game this weekend played because obviously... You, you had a scenario, reportedly rather, a scenario where the players weren't going to play. So maybe he's had that chat with his teammates behind closed doors, explaining that he's changed. And, and I certainly live in the hope that people who hold views like that can change and do change as they learn and, and mature. But I totally agree with you. Like, let's hear it from him. An Instagram post on an account that I think he's either deleted or put private now, so you can't even see it, as well as deleting his Twitter account. That doesn't that doesn't uh, suffice. And, and we need to hear him come out and, and talk about that Hopefully the journey he's been on about learning what what he said back then or tweeted w- was completely wrong and, and disgusting. So, yeah, we need to see more. It's it's not a good look for Argentinian rugby and for the sport as a whole. Yeah, completely agree. And we know working in media, like particularly journalists, we work adjacent with and sometimes in opposition to public relations professionals. I do notice like there's a, a trend in these public apologies these days, particularly where they pertain to past tweets where the person uh, says or is quoted as saying that they own their words. And I just think on the face of it, that might sound like a kind of a wholesome thing. But when you really break it down, like what what the hell does that actually mean? You know what I mean? I own my words. It, it was in Matera's statement. It's been in others. Like if you really want to own your words, quote unquote, then actually come out and, and elaborate. Uh, and, and just explain yourself basically that there's absolutely every chance he's a reformed <laughs> man he might not have not even have harbored actual 
racist beliefs at the time. It might have been just as I as I said earlier, like a horrible, horrible joke to make. Um, but you know, you've got a. I think the onus is on you to show more, uh, particularly before you're you're reinstated as captain, and particularly when there was a, a six month period in which or a seven month period in which that could have been done. Um, it'll be look it, as Bernard says, the investigation will continue. It'll be interesting to see what comes of it. One suspects not much will come of it when you consider the, the comments that have come out of Argentina today. Uh, on to other matters, Murray. Mm. And uh, you had a big, big story during the week about Ben Healy. Uh, just when 2020 seemed as though it was turning the corner, <laughs> Murray Kinsella drops a bomb on Monster fans, uh, particularly, or, or sorry, uh, potentially, uh, lights up the lives of Glasgow Warriors everywhere. So uh, give us the, the lowdown, or have you heard anything in the intervening days that would suggest Ben Healy is, is considering the offer or is leaning one way or the other, or is it still still just at a juncture in which uh, the interest is there on Glasgow's behalf? Yeah, that's it as far as I know. Um, they've made that approach, made that offer, um, certainly a strong offer, and I would guess, I don't know, I would guess that Ben Healy will now um, wait until the RFU allow the provinces to negotiate contracts again, um, and then see what he see what he's weighing up. You know, you gotta you gotta consider all options, and and you would think he would consider this. It it, it sounds like a decent option, a two year contract, senior deal, obviously increasing what he's earning, um, potential international rugby with Scotland there. But obviously, he grew up aiming to play for Ireland and play for Munster, and he's doing that now. He's doing really well. You know, next month it'll be interesting to see what happens with the European games. I feel he's earned his chance in in those games, um, and certainly he'll be looking to to feature there. So there's no there's no moving, there's no decision made as far as I know. Um, but like this happens all the time, players get options. We may not always find out in the media about them. A, a, a pertinent example in this case maybe is John Cooney because Scotland actually tried to get him over before his Ireland debut in 2017, and he kind of spurned them at that stage. Um, but I think now he probably looks back and wonders maybe I should have maybe I should actually gone. I'm not probably appreciate as much in Irish rugby as um, as he p- probably feels he should be. Um, so it, it, this kind of thing does happen. And you saw Tommy Seymour. I mean, he played underage rugby with Ireland before, and he went off and, and had a great career in Scotland as well. So it's not exactly completely new, but yeah, it, it is kind of jarring for for Munster fans that a, a guy of his a of his quality rather and his potential um, has such a, a decent option abroad. I think they'll be doing everything in their power once they're allowed to negotiate to, to keep him here. Yeah, it's clever by Glasgow, Bernard, to begin with, because they know that Munster are in a bit of a tight corner at the moment contractually based on, uh, well, based on a, a kind of a public admi- admission by David Nusifor during the week, and we'll get on to Nus in a moment, but they are dangling the carrot at a time when Munster themselves kind of can't, or, uh, well, they can't formally offer him anything, right? So, uh, looking to turn his head a little bit and if he's looking around him and he sees an informed JJ Handrahan he sees Joey Carberry potentially coming back and just so much competition for that Ireland shirt uh, across the four provinces and if he feels a sense of Scottishness as well which is possible uh, then it does actually seem like an attractive offer it's not just something that you would turn down willy-nilly if you like yeah, no, I, I don't think he'll turn it down with Lily, but I'd be, I'd be surprised if he goes. I don't think, I don't think the financial figures will be very different at the end of it. It's just a case of waiting until January or February. I, I don't see Scotland having or Glasgow and the SRU having thrown a massive figure at him that Munster couldn't get close to. Um, it's just a case of being patient and and you know if he was someone who wasn't getting any game time, um, 
you know, I could see, I could see it being a lot more attractive. But I think it'd be a huge look. At, is it? Maybe he has held ambitions to play for Scotland um, all his life. But um, I, I, I would be surprised if it's something that he's willing to jump at now. And and I think the example of someone having gone away and it not really helping him, and it wasn't for an EQP to play for England, was JJ. You know, JJ went to Northampton. Okay, he got a, a big deal, um, and potentially he felt he was being um, hard done by a monster, but didn't really improve his game to any level. And I think at the moment, in fairness, we have to say credit to Munster. Um, they do seem to be building something. There's a batch of young players who've taken this opportunity during the international window to get the game time that we, in fairness, said they should get. Um, and thankfully, they've 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 shown up to be good players. So uh, I think it'd be an easier conversation to, for Munster to have. That you know, if he was still in the in a on a development contract and having not played as much, and um, surely he has the bit between the teeth now. He sees how good Munster are compared to the rest of the teams outside non-Irish teams in the Pro 14. Uh, if you get Champions Cup rugby for Munster, I mean, if you're a Munster man to play in Tomlin Park in a Champions Cup game, um, that's that's a special thing. You know, he would have been on the terrace there, I'm sure, as a kid. And like, there's a there's a it's a far more it's a far bigger club. Um, uh, our bigger province, uh, uh, an organisation, no disrespect to Glasgow, than Glasgow is, and, and uh, I'd be shocked if he left. And I think, you know, you said officially, I mean, there's no reason why the Munster CEO couldn't be having a conversation with Ben and his agent saying, look, we can't give you a contract today, but we value at you at X, and all going well, you know, we'll we'll honour that. And that would give him some, um, some security, but the thing is, like, he's probably not in huge money anyway, so... Um, at the moment so sometimes when you don't have it it's not a big a deal uh, it'll come it'll come based on performances you know what I mean it'll come it'll come if he just keeps doing what he's what he's doing anyway whether that's in Ireland or, or in Scotland yeah before we move on from Healy Murray you, I guess uh, well Monster fans will hope and I think Irish rugby fans generally would hope that he just backs himself to establish himself mm. at Monster, right because as Bernard says in time and it might be a very short period of time he will get an offer and if his potential is to be fulfilled to its fullest extent, uh, he's a guy who could be uh, like a de facto franchise player, if you like. I, I know Joey Carberry is going to be there as well, but like if you had two of them in, in rotation and potentially Jack Crowley, and as we said, Hanron is flying as well. Although the more I'm talking, the more I sort of feel as though four doesn't go into one, to be fair. Mm. But, you know, it, it, it would be a decision that could potentially you know, could potentially define his career, could potentially define the next five or six years for Munster if Healy is as good as we think he is. So, uh, I, well, what am I asking? I guess just you'd hope that he does stay and become that, that key. Yeah, figure. you'd hope he backs himself to, to push on here. The place he's in, the place he's been striving towards, that red jersey is something he's been dreaming of, coming through in Glenstall, coming, like growing up in Tipperary and, and dreaming of playing for that. Uh, for the jersey as Bernard says in an incredible stadium and once they get fans back in there that, that's what he will be achieving I think he's re really on that pathway he's improving all the time working with someone like Stephen Larkham who can push his skills and, and work with those excellent kind of kicking abilities he has and, and the bit of vision he has as well so yeah you definitely hope he backs himself uh, to continue this development pathway he, listen he's going to have the Scots in his ear Tell him, listen, you know, you're going to be higher up on our rankings internationally. Even if you look at what's happened, you know, Finn Russell and Hastings are, are injured at the moment and they went with Weir and now they're with Van der Vault and, and they're probably saying, you know, you can get on that ladder pretty quickly um, and push through. So there'll be all sorts of things 
um, going on and, and maybe different drags in different directions but I think he looks good enough and talented enough to push on and, and rise up that pecking order in Irish rugby and, and definitely Munster fans will be hoping that's the case mm, I'd say to Munster fans as well that it's not in his interests to dismiss the speculation or, or dismiss Glasgow's interest in him so just be patient on that front as well if he came out and said no I'm Munster through and through and I want to play for Ireland then that contract offer when it does arrive in January or February might be a, a little bit uh, a little bit more lowly let's say uh, David Nusifora was back in the news this week and so was Johnny Sexton even on a what was an off week for him over the weekend kind of can't keep him out of the headlines even though I'm sure he'd love to be removed from them uh, but he was kind of front and centre of that contractual chat Murray uh, he wants to play until the next World Cup Nusifora got a it kind of became a lightning rod during the week via Gordon Darcy's column and I've seen a, a few other publications sort of follow suit with that so um, it was it's always interesting to hear from him because he's very unapologetic and unabashed in the way he goes about business doesn't rub people up the right way I would say doesn't seem to really care either um, but what did you make of his comments during the week and, and what do you make of that Sexton situation is it kind of just accepted really that that he's going to be there until the next world cup if he continues playing the way he has been playing yeah well i'd be shocked i'd be certainly shocked if he doesn't have a, a contract into to next season obviously he's one of the guys expiring at the end so it's june 2021 a lot of kind of high profile irish players are out of contract you think of O'Mahony, stander furlong earls keen healy ian henderson there's actually there are 50 percent or above 50 percent of all irish players professionally out of contract at the end of this season so there's a lot of work to do it's obviously on on hold at the moment as they kind of get that final assessment of where they are financially and what they can commit to but a lot of that will start happening in january um and it might be a little bit delayed but uh, like news four is very confident they're going to be able to keep all the guys they want to keep as they have done the second one's interesting i can imagine maybe them doing a a kind of one plus one year contract where the first one's set in stone and then you, you see about the second one. Um, he look, he's still the best out half by, by some distance. Someone's got to take down the king before they become the king and no one's been good enough to do that or, or really near good enough in my eyes. Um, it's a massive boost for him having him back this weekend as the leader, the kind of chief tactician and he's still the best at all the things like taking on defenders, engaging them before he passes. That's been poor the last few weeks. He's still the best defensive 10 they have. And obviously the, the mental uh, skills he has as well, I, I suppose, in, in terms of inspiring others are, are really big. It's always interesting interview him because he, he reminds me of, um, like I, I thought of Michael Jordan in the last dance again when he was talking the other day. He always has a little um, motivation. He always finds something or, you know, twists a comment to make it th- seem like we're, we're having a go at him when, when you're not really, you know. You know, he's saying everyone wants me to retire. All these past players want me to retire. I don't think they really do, but... It is interesting the way he, he motivates himself and he definitely uh, believes in his ability to keep to keep going and, and keep his body fit if he can. There's a recognition that you know traumatic injury can can change that as happened with someone like Paul O'Connell. But yeah, he's going to target that World Cup. I think um, Alliance Tour before that as well. And he's certainly not dimming in his ambition to, to keep playing. Are you confident, Bernard, that uh, the RFU will be able to keep all of the guys that they want to keep? As Murray says, despite this half suggestions that it might be more difficult than it usually would be and understandably obviously in the circumstances okay I, I think they'll keep them all it's just keeping them at the right price based around where they are if you see the revenue coming um look at I, I think there's gonna be big haircuts uh in terms of salaries uh, but that 
from an Irish point of view, from an IRFU point of view, Nusifora, like he knows what's happening um, elsewhere. And um, the, the English clubs were actually quite lucky. And I don't know if you know the background to this, that they were able to re-sign a lot of their players um, very quickly over a matter of a couple of days. Um, and that meant that they wouldn't, co- those those pay increases, those contracts wouldn't co- count towards the salary cap, which may be reducing. So a lot of English players signed for three and four years in their clubs, Exeter, Bristol, etc., um, and didn't take the the level of pay drop. I think that's going to come in 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 World Rugby. They they committed for a long time. The club knew that that would keep them under the salary cap, and uh, the players got you know long contracts on maybe a little bit less than they're on, but not as drastic as I think the market's going to be next summer. So I think Nusifora knows that the Irish team aren't performing as well as they were. Um, you know. Are, is there many of those Irish team that the big French clubs will be breaking down the door to get to, to help them win a championship at the moment? No. Um, and, you know, the, 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 I, I, I'd be shocked if we lost Manny. And I think Johnny Johnny will get a two-year contract. He deserves a two-year contract and, and go from there. I think Farrell needs Johnny. I think my cat needs Johnny. Um, I think Ireland need Johnny. So um, when people need you, um, you know, and you want to build a successful team, you have to pay pay the money. And um, yeah, so I wouldn't be I wouldn't be worried about it. And look at it. I think any player who's who's completely upset about not being able to do the deal to January um, just needs to relax and, and 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 take a bit of stock. They have a contract till June at worst, and you know just. The likelihood is if you're playing for Ireland this weekend, you're going to get offered a contract, whether at national level or provincial level. So um, it's not the end of the world, just just basically wait. What about Sexton specifically then as it pertains to the World Cup, right? So I'm blue in the face from having this conversation with you, to be totally honest, but it just sort of keeps rearing its head. And like, as you say, you expect him to get a, a two-year deal. If you're looking ahead to like the autumn of 2023, when he'll be 38, I guess, uh, how conceivable is it? How realistic is it that he's still performing at a level in which he's capable of being Ireland's first choice ten at another World Cup? Yeah, I think he can. But I wouldn't give him the three-year contract, you know, yet. I'd let I'd let him uh, see how it pans out over the next two years. But I think because his game wasn't built on athleticism, you know, he's that wasn't his game. So um, there's more chance that he can still be, you know, really effective. Um, uh, you know, at 38 years of age. And I, I think, like, I, I'm fascinated to see his influence this week and how how he fine-tunes things, uh, how they react to Georgia, uh, how much better they look with him playing. Does that, you know, does that help our attack shape? Um, you know, so, and again, that's that's just a challenge for Johnny. Every time he plays, you expect the team to be a lot better. And, and um, you know, I, I can imagine he's absolutely you know, fired up. He's been watching England from the sideline. He's watched Georgia from the sideline. Um and will have seen areas that Ireland are poor in. And you know, he's gone out as a captain and and and, and tried to throw a positive spin on it. But he's an unbelievably um self critical critical of, of poor standards as well. So there's definite areas that we need to tighten up on and um it'd be really interesting if him and Murray back together um can can help help us map our way around the field a little bit better. I totally agree. I think he does. He's showing signs that he can have that longevity, but it doesn't mean that Ireland don't have work to do there because like any player can get injured and any important player can be injured before a World Cup in two years' time, particularly when they're that age. Um, and that is, a, that is a fact, you know, you're more susceptible to those issues. So Farrell's got to keep that in mind and he's got to, for me, 
really have a clear number two in his mind and give them a lot of minutes and as much exposure and experience as is possible because say even think of the 2015 World Cup um, when Johnny went down and Madigan's there and he maybe hadn't had those recent big minutes and, and you come to a quarter final and it's it's tough on the player being put in there so I think yeah Johnny Sexton what an incredible um, competitor and I think he will continue to fight on but you've got to you've got to have a plan B as well just go back to go back to New Sephora. Sorry, Gav. If 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 there's a criticism of it, I didn't read uh, Darcy's article, but um, I would say that the challenge for him now as head of performance is obviously get the contract side of it worked out. And um, I would excuse him to some extent in some of that because obviously it's a um, you know he has a, he, he he's not sure of his budget. But from a a player development point of view, which I would believe would come under his watch, um, maybe more so than the national coach um, who has the the short-term focus of getting the team better. Like, realistically, you know, behind tight furlong, we're not really sure who the who the next tight head is. Um, and behind Johnny Sexton, we're not really sure who the next 10 is. You could argue behind Murray, we're not sure who the who the next nine is. So for the for the individual positions um that are critical for success at provincial level and, and national level, we actually haven't done a great job of of blooding the next the next crop. Uh, so we've been very lucky with Ty Farlong. He's had longevity. Very lucky with Conor Murray. Johnny Sexton have had longevity and, and that's great. And they've been the best. Absolutely no doubt around that. But, you know, if you look behind, you know, I would have argued that the best choice for this game would have been Marty Moore or Michael Bent uh, as a tight end, the head of Andrew Porter, just because I think we're going to get uh, severely tested there and it's a test match and you want to win it. So, and like Mark, no disrespect to Marty Moore, Michael Bent, they've been around a block a long time and fair play to them if they're the next best in the position. But, I don't think we've done a great job of of actually really bringing true people um, in, in those individual positions, and that's that's probably the next block. You still have time. Twenty twenty three World Cup. You know, realistically, if we go into that World Cup, just hoping that Tyke Furlong stays fit and uh, Johnny Sexton stays fit, well, then it's a failure from a systematic point of view and a strategic point of view. Is it not already a failure to be hinging your hopes of World Cup success on a man who's going to be 38 years of age? It's it's unprecedented. Like, I can't think of a, an out half who's played at a like a, an elite level consistently at 38. Like, Diego Dominguez maybe in the Six Nations years ago. Obviously, Dan Carter is still sort of knocking around, but in more of a, a cameo advisory role nearly. Like, when we're talking about succession planning, is it not almost reductive or insular to be planning now for Sexton to be the starting 10 in three years' time. You have three years for any of that conveyor belt of out-halves coming up to usurp him, if you like. Is that just not a realistic prospect based on those talents, Bernard? Yeah, well, take Johnny out of it. Jo- Johnny's going to do what he does, right? So that's not his problem. <laughs> I'm talking about uh, behind that. So Andy Farrell can base his his, uh, his plan on Johnny Sexton because he's the best. He's the best there is at the moment. What I'm saying is that, you know, David Nusifora needs to be highly involved in in making sure that we have a backup um, over the next couple of years. And if you look at, like, Eddie Jones doesn't have to worry about this because there's whatever, 12 teams um, all chasing uh, success or, or, or stability by staying up who have a have a requirement to have a certain amount of English qualified players. So the chance of it being a 10 to back up Owen Farrell in three years' time um, are higher in England or France uh, for obviously... Uh, into Mac, um, than there is in Ireland. So we have a, a model with four teams. You know, the Jim Allender is now the head of performance in, in the SRU. He's looking at the step chart for Scotland. He's going, Ben Healy. You know, he's Scottish qualified. 
I need to try and get him to Glasgow so that potentially in two years' time we don't have to go with Duncan Weir um, as, a, as our third choice or whatever. So like though, this is happening elsewhere. Um, uh, Razzie, you can be sure, is, is all over you know, his depth chart of a thousand professional players across the world um, and you know, regularly checking in on everybody to see where they're at. We only have four teams. Um, so we do need that guy as head of performance to be very strategic and in particularly in, in these positions that are, you know, specialist positions. I would, you know, hooker, hooker, you know, there's a couple of good hookers around, so they may come through just naturally by being first choice for the province. But tight head prop, scrum half and 10, um, and you could argue maybe 15. So, like, I know it sounds like I'm fixated on out half and all of the positions you mentioned are, are relevant to your point. But what I'm trying to ask is, is it not incredibly risky and actually probably foolish to put all of your eggs in the basket of a man who is going to be 38 at the next World Cup, who probably won't be as good then as he is now and probably isn't as good now as he was a couple of years ago? And I don't just mean in terms of form, I mean in terms of making errors that he used to not make because his body now isn't quite the same as what it once was, just from years of wear and tear and general athletic decline. Like, are you at risk not you personally but are Ireland yeah. at risk of running a World Cup cycle on fossil fuel and at risk of seeing that fuel run out six months eight months ten months before a tournament and not having a guy who's ready to take the mantle necessarily because he hasn't been number one for the entire cycle to that point yeah but uh, at the moment like, we all want to win where everyone's going mad because we were poor against Georgia we, we were you know we lost to France um, England like there's, there's a World Cup cycle and then there's everything on the way to it. And I think you can actually achieve both. Um, you know, so if Johnny's the best now, which he is, um, he plays and he, and hopefully helps us win and build confidence and, and um and belief and, and bring through other players. And at the same time you gotta be developing other players um quickly to become challengers to him. And that may be uh, that's not his fault that no one has stepped up really over the last couple of years. Um and that's where I'm saying, you know, Andy Farrell, we're going to judge him on results performances. He's going to pick the best. And I don't think you have to exclusively, by back in Sexton, you're not exclusively saying we're putting all our eggs in one basket. Um, and if you do that, that's absolute madness. That's why I said, you know, New Sephora, and uh, if Farrell can't do it, New Sephora needs to be all over the four provincial coaches, making sure that whoever has shown the potential to potentially get there gets fast-tracked. That, that's my argument. It's not... Uh, you know, once we go down this, if we give Johnny a two-year contract, that's it. We're committed. It's over. No, you you got to play the best ten and try and find the next best one and the one after gotcha. that. Well, let's look at the team then and look ahead to this weekend. Uh, Murray, it's kind of as you expected. We were saying just before we came on that it's a full-strength team, and if it was to go awry, there can't really be an argument that it was due to experimentation or anything of the sort. This was Andy Farrell's best fifteen best 23-ish, and uh, it's back to the wall now against Scotland, which is exciting in a way. Yeah, I mean, the selection very much underlines how important the fixture is to to Ireland. No experimentation in this one. He's gone for his like best available, as I say, most experienced, certainly the players with the biggest profile and guys who've probably proven themselves in bigger games in the past, um, as well as, say, Doris and, and Keenan, who've definitely earned their their chances in this team so it is a big fixture for Ireland uh, Eric O'Sullivan's going to make his debut off the bench which is the kind of the freshness to it and I think it is good that they've gone with a, a backup loose head 
battered and trying to have Bielan flip across, which didn't work out well. Um, a couple of guys, Andrew Conway, we don't know if he's injured again. He was doing the warm-up the last day. Uh, I think he's unlucky to miss out, to be honest. Tyg Byrne potentially could have featured in there. But there's, you know, on paper, that's a, a strong Irish team. And it is a big day for Andy Farrell's era. He's a year into the gig. As Bernard's mentioned there, there's a, a bit of pressure and unhappiness about the last few weeks. And I think they really need to finish off on a nice, strong note. Certainly a winning note here. Or else you're heading into that 2021 Six Nations with a real dourness and pessimism around Ireland, as well as the confidence further dented. If they can finish strong here, they can you know, justify in their own heads that it's been a, a worthwhile campaign where they've got a bit of experimentation done, as well as um, keeping a decent record. So, yeah, certainly he's gone strong because he needs a, he needs a result. That selection probably should have come with an element of comfort, Bernard, in that it is a, a full-strength uh, 15 to begin with. But when we were chatting last week ahead of the Georgia game, we didn't actually pay a great deal of heed to the Georgia game in particular because it's difficult to preview a game like that where in the backs of all of our minds we're thinking 35, 40-point win, realistically. It didn't transpire to be the case. And the one thing that we did say about that game last week was that he was taking really no chances with the team. It was quite an experienced team that he, he lined out. To, to be honest, I didn't say it at the time, but I'm kind of thinking, is that a little bit of overkill, if you like, in that you're playing such a strong team, we're going to learn nothing about any of the players in it, really. As it turned out, we actually did learn a fair amount, but none of it was good. So I, I'm not filled with uh, the comfort that might have uh, come with such a selection for this Scotland game. Um, w- when you were looking back at that Georgia game, and I'm sure you did in, in great detail, uh, how sad were you? Uh, I was very disillusioned to be honest because I expected like you know I've had this chat before we put so much focus on our attack um, and that was the priority for us to build a new attacking system we were whatever eight nine games in against an opposition who if you didn't run straight at him um, you could uh, find space and we decided to run pretty much straight at him as much as we could and we came off second best And, and if that's the if that's what we're going to build, um, well, it's the same as we did in 2018, really. You know, we're just doing it way uh, at a far lower level. And, like, we have to, I have to be honest, I know, you know, there's this chat that we create a lot of opportunities. Georgia defensively were actually really bad, like really bad. Um, and we only scored two tries. So, um, I look at maybe, maybe that was, the, that was the best way to learn was by playing against a bad defense and not being able to, to conquer it. But, uh, like realistically, it's like we copy and pasted the game plan we should have had against England and did it against Georgia. When the reality is, and maybe this is a genius, is that so Eddie Jones and I praise Eddie Jones because no matter who he plays at the moment, it's literally copy and paste, copy and paste our game, our game, our game. Um, whereas a lot of coaches they go, okay, well that's their weakness. Um, let's go after that, and and there's a little bit of variation, like. I, I think that we kicked the ball far too much attacking kicks against against Georgia when it was on to keep it. Um, and it would have been great to actually um, keep the ball and build up opportunities to exploit space and, and uh, have continuity and, and have mismatches, etc. But we we didn't um, we didn't do that. So and like it, it continued all the way through the second half. And it actually, sorry, it started from the first half. And, and I just worry about the level of analysis. So like obviously after England, Oh, why are we chipping the ball? Why are we chipping? There's chip space there. So against Georgia from two set pieces, like we chipped. And actually how they defend is completely different in England. So you wouldn't chip against Georgia or chip against England, but we did it. Um, so 
And I just wonder at half time why they couldn't say, look, you know, stop kicking to the outside channels, those attacking kicks, because it's just giving them a chance to have a set or to defend a set piece, and uh, and uh, they're getting a break. They're getting, you know, they're getting a chance to get some oxygen into their lungs, and that's probably why they ended up lasting the la the last twenty so strong is because the game actually became stop start because of our own inaccuracies. But look at uh, I, I, I sound unbelievably harsh there, but. I, and I do think an attack is harder to implement than defense or line out strategy. But I just wonder, are we, are we always a week behind the curve? Um, no, but look, that's just my, and I'm not saying we are. I'm just, at the moment, it's a, it's a small sample. But I fear a little bit that we're we're reactive uh, a week too late. Um, and uh, like, for example, against Georgia, we were kicking for goal, taking our points. Yeah, like... I, I absolutely, I was saying after France and England, we should kick our points. But maybe against Georgia, you know, don't kick your points against Georgia. And that's when you can actually go into the corner. We had a 16 from 16% line out. Maybe play a little bit off the back, play into that into that, um, into that, that pocket between the tail gunner and the 10. And get moving. I know we did a few peels near the end and we, we probably should have scored. But, like, probably if you want to have, if you want to really be ruthless and go out and have a big attacking game against Georgia... Don't kick the ball away as much at the edges. Um, don't go for chip space that's not there. And maybe don't kick your goals. Uh, I know we probably had to kick the goals in the end to win the game uh, and be comfortable at the end. But like we left the match feeling probably disappointed we didn't really achieve what we wanted to achieve, which isn't which isn't great, you know. Yeah, I, I know you're wary of of sounding too harsh, but with respect to our anonymous account friend that I mentioned at the start, it, it's really tough to, to be positive after a game like that. It, it, like, I might, like the defining image of the game to me was Ireland getting turned over by an 18-year-old. And, and that's not to disparage David Niniashvili, a wonderful moment for him. I'm sure he's going to be a tremendous player, but it, it's the equivalent. I mean, it's literally the same as being turned over by a six-year in secondary school at test level. Like it, it just—I know he's a, clearly a great athlete, but it's just the sort of thing that shouldn't be happening. And it seemed symptomatic of a, a wider issue at the breakdown in that game, specifically Bernard, but also just generally now. I think it's—it's it's becoming a trend. Yeah, I've done a piece for for RT for, for the game, and it's on the breakdown, and I'm, I'm limited to two and a half minutes or whatever. So I did a little bit of comparison between 2018 and 2020, and I, I wish we, I didn't have to keep coming back to 2018, but. One of the things we were actually very good at was was the breakdown, and um, we didn't burn too many numbers. We had a high high recycle rate. We were able to create reasonably quick ball. Um, in the twenty two, we didn't create quick ball, but that was the plan. Outside of that, we could create quick ball, and I compared it to the New Zealand game to the England game. And I could have picked Georgia, I could have picked Wales, I could have picked France, but I just um, maybe I had a laziness. I only picked one game, but like some of our technique, um, some of our physicality. Um, and and again, same against Georgia, some of our urgency to get there before the opposition. So in 2018, the, the laws favoured the attacking team, right? So you didn't have to be there as early, um, and, and, and you could make, you know, the referee gave the uh, the jackaler, he gave the support player time to clean the jackaler out, he had to survive the, the clean-out, which was hard. But we were there early all the time, you know, and I know it was pre-programmed and everyone knew their role and it was... Uh, it was um, it was maybe suffocating for the players to do it, but it meant we actually had security on our ball. And now, and I don't know whether look at the, the the footage doesn't doesn't uh, show our technique or aggression or our understanding of the breakdown principles in a good light. 
But I think there's a combination of we've eased off on our on our need to have accountability at the breakdown for do your job. And then we've eased off on actually understanding where the, where the breakdown might happen. So you either end up with too few people at the Rook or the first support is late and then you're dead or we end up with too many at the breakdown and then our attack is dead. So like, I, I couldn't say the answer would be to get out under the Rooking net all week and, and work on Rooking because I don't think that's, that's exclusively the problem. But also if we go out and, and just do our detail around, you know, who's who's going where, what area of the field we're going to t- attack, uh, target, that might be enough either. So there's a, there's a massive work, week of work because Scotland, Scotland will will be licking their lips at our at our breakdown work, you know. Yeah, Murray Scotland. That pack we're we're going to be facing this weekend uh, is not the same pack that we've been steamrolling for the last few years either. Like they seem to have uh, through changes in personnel and just through a, a bit of an upturn in form, turn the corner really in terms of their own physical intensity. They're not so much there to be bullied to the same extent as they have been in recent encounters between the two countries. Certainly not. If you think of the game between these sides earlier on this year, they absolutely destroyed the Irish scrum. They took apart the Irish mole. You know, Ireland got no change off that area. And that was probably the start of themes we've seen in those areas that continued to exist up over the last few weeks, including last weekend against Georgia and in the scrum, certainly. Um, so Scotland will have huge confidence around that. Rory Sutherland being back as well is massive for them. He brought massive physicality in that game in Dublin that the Scots definitely feel they should have won. You know, Stuart Hogg memorably dropped the ball over the try line, um, but they certainly got on top of Ireland in those key set-piece areas, uh, and that's a big concern for Ireland. That's another one that's top of their to-do list. The breakdown is massive. Like, getting the mentality right there, having that bit of like it's funny Andy Farrell came into the job and what he said he wanted Ireland to have was that Irish aggression that kind of fighting spirit but around the breakdown they they haven't had that really against the best teams you know like you want you want to be careful obviously questioning people in that regard because players take such pride in it but England beat them in those areas there wasn't enough aggression in their clear out so they got to get that right the line out of mall just have to be better it hasn't been at the standard required at top test level and that's a big pressure on Simon Easterby and his forwards in, in that the scrum's got to be more solid because it's been given other teams really nice access really nice psychological boosts um, and then I think on the back of that how good would it be to see um, to see one of my cats plays really work perfectly and, and Ireland to score off that like that would give them such a lift if they if they can finish one of their plays or actually cut the Scots apart and score off the back of it there have been little glimpses obviously against Wales you think of that early example where Sexton's pass to low it, it doesn't go to hand if they, if they score that you think they're going to be flowing with confidence but it'd be brilliant for them to, to get that um, just clicking really and then just, I suppose to go back to the mental side of it, you'd love to see Ireland just have a dominant kind of mindset in this impose themselves on Scotland don't overthink the fact that Scotland are better just you know rattle Jakob van der Voldt on his test debut he's kind of been um, flung into the test arena now that he's qualified get on top of him like make Scotland chase the game make them be moaning and complaining to the referee um, and bring back a bit of that kind of physical dominance that, that Ireland at their very best had Um on top of that, maybe the last thing on the checklist is definitely what Bernard mentioned earlier on, that decision-making around the kick-pass run I think has just been a little bit off. And, and that can happen when you're overthinking things. As he said, you know, you talk about the attack and kicking game and then that's probably in your head too much. Um, I think sex and being back will definitely help with that. But there's loads there for Ireland to, to get right. And certainly there's loads of reasons there for Scotland to be a bit more confident. The last time they won in Dublin was a decade ago in Croke Park. You think of Dan Park's 
I think he kicked 15 or 18 points that day. The time before that was all the way in, in 1998. And actually, Brian Ashton resigned after that game and Gats took over. So hopefully there's no similarly dramatic outcome to this. But I think the Scots will be fancying their chances. And certainly there's lots for Ireland to improve on. So you touched upon the line out there a moment ago, Murray, and was going to ask you that, Bernard, as well. It's probably the one selection that Farrell has made this weekend, which might be seen by some as contentious or, or, or at least a, a little bit of a toss-up. He's opted for experience in Bob Herring. Is it a bit of a blow to Ronan Kelleher to uh, sort of... Uh, well, it's maybe not fair to say lose his place because they've been kind of in contention with each other. But I guess based on the fact that the lineout hadn't been going well as a unit uh, in those couple of tests in, in uh, Paris and Twickenham and so on, Herring comes in against Georgia, Ireland went 16 or 16 on their own ball. Does it feel as though like that it's, it's whether intentionally or not, it kind of makes it seem as though Kelleher was yeah. somewhat more culpable for the line-out woes than he actually was in that there were so many moving parts in it going wrong. Yeah, I think going into this block, they probably felt Kelleher was number one. Um, and I, I think if he is dropped because of the line-out, uh, it's the wrong call, even though um, there's probably not a huge amount between him and Herring, except I think that Ronan's got more potential. So I'm thinking about three years' time, um, and given how we do struggle in that power stakes, um, I, I think he'll be our number one hooker. And, and I, I know he got dropped from Leinster for that Saracens game um, based around a couple of poor line-up performance from Leinster going into it, but I thought it was a mistake. I thought, um, I think if Keller's in that scrum, it's going to be better than it is. It's not going to be, you know, there's other areas that need to be fixed as well, but he does add to it. And, um, you know, I just think that's a missed opportunity for him to get another another game to be honest and, and um, there's not a huge amount between them all at the moment Heffernan as well but I just think that in a in an era where we're crying out for bigger more powerful men um, and you have one you don't pick him um, and, and also it's the growth he has left in him is is probably something that we, you know the more games he gets the better he's going to be but a line out the line out needs to be it needs to run smoothly for the hooker to, to look good. And you can't judge 16 v 16 against Georgia because like their defensive line out, it was like they met in the pub car park. You know, like they didn't have a strategy. So, um, like, and their attack line out was, was as bad as well. But, um, so I don't think our, we can say we've solved our issues. We, we need to, you know, be good against Scotland um, to and see some tactical improvements to basically say it's a more fluid, uh, more fluid performing line out. The hooker one is really interesting because I, like, I think Rob Herring has been a bit better and like he deserves his place right now but that's totally the issue we were talking about earlier on and I actually asked News Sephora about this you know should Ireland be selecting with 2023 in mind he said we're not thinking about 2023 um, and to some people that'll be a jarring comment he said you've got to focus on what's in front of you there's obviously a balance there he, he alluded to but clearly they're more focused on, on winning right now and certainly this weekend you can understand that Keller has been in in good or sorry rather Herring's been in good form and he probably feels it's just a bit more of a solid choice this weekend yeah and I hope I didn't come across as being too harsh on Herring there like it, it is a kind of a toss-up as I was saying he's uh, in smashing form as he mentioned can I get predictions off you gentlemen before we wrap up with a couple of more uh, points so Murray Ireland Scotland who's going to win and how I go Ireland by four points I think it's going to be really close um but I think they'll I think they'll be improved. I think they've been together for a longer time now. There can be no lack of clarity in, in what they want to do. And if there is a lack of clarity this time, 
then it's extremely concerning. But I'm really interested in hearing your prediction, to be honest, Gav. Um, I would say Ireland by 34. No, I, I think one. I think one score game. To be totally honest, I know I'm doing a complete reversal on my pre-England optimism, but I, I actually think Scotland will win. Uh, Bernard, can you set the record straight here? We're, we're tied at one apiece. Yeah, uh, I'm very worried, but I think, I think this team will know this is a huge game for them. They got to finish this block. They're they're all talking about how good camp is. Um, how enjoyable it is, and I think they need to to repay Farrell's um, focus on enjoyment and and making it a nice place to be by actually giving us a better performance. And if we do that, you know, we should should just just about be good enough to win. Murray, Fiji are back. You said you're excited at the start of the show, and it's just brilliant. I think a couple of weeks ago, even as recently as that, it felt as though their their season might be coming to an end. Their participation in, uh, <laughs> well, in November basically or December, would not come to fruition at all. It, it's uh, amazing, really, for them to to get a run out before the year's end. Yeah, absolutely. This was one of the most exciting things about this whole competition definitely the fact that they were going to be involved we hoped japan would as well at least georgia got a shot and and fair play to them they did well last weekend and, and i'm really excited about this game fiji have obviously been dealing with covid in camp um but it is a strong team they've named obviously there'll be some side effects you would imagine of, of not having been able to train but there's a lot to be excited about there um the likes of frank lamani semi radradra 13 obviously tui sova and nadolo on the wings a lot of firepower there they're missing a couple of key guys up front, you think of uh, Patheli Yato and Nakarawa and Mata, guys who would have been very useful in, in this comp if they had played, but a couple of debuts there um, and the Vern Cotter era gets underway. It'll be really interesting to see what he himself and a pretty experienced coaching group can add to the long-standing strengths of Fiji in rugby. You would imagine they'll, um, they'll try and add a bit more, I suppose, organizational qualities to it all um, and it'll be a really interesting mix over the next couple of years but I'm excited to see them get underway and, and also to see if Georgia can kind of back up what we saw last weekend mm, yeah absolutely it could be an interesting game that uh, Connacht to get the job done tomorrow Friday uh, 25 to 8 against Benetton Bernard before we wrap yeah I think so I watched uh, Benetton against the Dragons I watched a good bit of Benetton actually but uh, they, they're struggling um, you know the, the, the real testament to them over the last couple of years was their ability to get points when uh the internationals were away but um i'm not sure why but the their squad depth seems to have dropped off a little bit um monte only didn't play last weekend i spoke to any friend yesterday and he's certainly hoping he doesn't play he's a he's a for them but yeah i think i think connor are, are, are good enough it's been a difficult time for connor with so many games called off and um yeah they, they'll they'll really i think um embrace this opportunity to play and put in a big performance could well be the same for Benetton as well Murray I suppose um, just the fact that a lot of their preparations would have been disrupted and maybe they aren't into the, the swing of things to the same extent as other teams um, but that being said it's difficult to see them coming away from Galway with anything tomorrow or at least with a, anything more than the point let's say yeah and interesting just to watch Connacht's I suppose tactical approach developing talking to Andy Friend uh, before the Ospreys um, postponed match and he's he's very big on on getting them to have a uh, you know a, a better balance between that kind of instinct to run out from deep but also using their kicking game to conserve a bit of energy and and fuel as he calls it and, and striking at the right time rather than just uh, wasting energy trying to, to run, run out when that's not on so there's definitely a kind of tactical education going on there and i think the players are, are grasping it and, and definitely enjoying it and and you're seeing the 
the incision of their attacking play when they do strike now. They've been really lethal and clinical in, in those little bursts uh, and combining that with being in the right area of the pitch. So interesting to, to follow their development and, and I definitely see them winning that one. Yes, indeed. The Fiji of the West, Connacht. I love watching them. Uh, <laughs> thank you as always, man. <laughs> Bernard, let you go. Uh, mind yourself and we'll catch you next week. Thank you. Chat next week. Everybody can see Bernard's analysis to which he alluded earlier as well. Will that be tweeted out on social media, Birch, actually? Yeah, I'd say so, yeah. yeah. Lovely, lovely. Uh, Murray, thank you as always. Cheers, Gav. Enjoy the rugby over the weekend and the same goes to everybody. Thanks a million for tuning in. We will be back on Monday for the 42 members. Members.the42.e if you want to join us there. Murray and Owen Toolan looking back on this Scotland game this weekend. We'll also be back for non-members in the usual slot next Thursday. If you have time at all, uh, we'd love if you could leave us a, a rating or a review. I do the call out every so often and people are incredibly generous in in, <laughs> in doing so. But it just allows us to uh, climb the charts and so on. Things that we probably don't check enough, to be totally honest. But um, the bigger the podcast is, the more exposure it gets. I think the better it will be as well and the more we can do with it going forward. So much appreciated if you get the chance. Until next week, mind yourselves, take it easy. I don't think we've met before, but I'm the referee on this field. If you're working as an accountant and you lose your job, nobody really notices. Leinster could offer me five mil a year, I wouldn't go. <laughs> it is coming Robbie Robbie Weekly. Little reverse pass. Oh!